0: Welcome to another edition of Barbarians at the Gates. I'm Jeremiah Jenny, and with me here in Beijing is my co-host David Moser. How you doing, David?
1: Really good. We're heading to the end of 2021, which is another COVID year.
0: Dude, everyone was really down in 2020. Yeah, I don't know if 2021 was like a huge improvement. No. Yeah. So we're also for 2022, though. (laughs) With us today, too, is James Griffiths, an author and foreign correspondent. He's uh, beaming in from Hong Kong. How are you doing, James? Hey, I'm very well. Thanks for having me. So James has reported from across Asia, including Hong Kong, China, Sri Lanka, Malaysia, South Korea. He's the author of a book, The Great Firewall of China, and a new book, Speak Not Empire Identity and the Politics of Language, which is out this year. Currently, he is the Asia correspondent for the Globe and Mail by way of CNN International, and uh, it's it's really great to have you with us today. Thank you. Yeah, it's great to be here. I'm a big fan of the
2: podcast.
1: So, James, I was really um, happy to read your book when it came out recently. We, we have also interviewed uh, Dr. Gina Tam on this podcast. So we all have a lot of overlap with these issues, and your, your book is very timely for recent China, especially due to the events in Hong Kong, but also the last decade where we've sort of seen this ramping up of the project to expand and, and entrench Putonghua as the exclusive language in state media and the education system. And as a result, we've seen the erosion of the, many of these Han li- dialects or languages such as Cantonese, Sichuan dialects, and of course, ethnic minority languages, Tibetan, the Xinjiang languages, and Inner Mongolia. So, you, But your book covers not just China, which is usually the focus here, but also describes the situation with many other endangered languages throughout the world. Maybe you should just start off by giving us an account of how you came to write this book and uh, your own personal linguistic background, which is very instru- interesting, and, and how you would characterize the global situation regarding the death of all these regional speech forms.
2: Yeah, absolutely. So um, about a third of the book is about uh, Hong Kong and China and, and especially Cantonese, but but the book does also look at two other languages, uh, Welsh and Hawaiian in detail. Um, Welsh is the language that I grew up speaking as a, as a bilingual um, Welsh and English speaker in in North Wales. And, and one of the inspirations for the book, the kind of genesis of it was... Being in Hong Kong, living in Hong Kong, which I have since 2014, and seeing the the parallels in the conversation around Cantonese and how much it resonated with essentially what I grew up with as, with, as Welsh, that, that there was this uh, concern for the future of the language. And uh, kind of paranoia about the direction in which it was heading, but but not only that, there was also the same kind of quite paternal attitude, or sorry, paternalistic attitude, from the government and from some people who dismiss concerns that that oh you know we don't need to worry about Cantonese because people will speak it at home, or you know it's important for people to speak Putonghua because that's the language of the future, that's the language of the economy, and and those are exactly the same arguments that were made in Wales during the suppression of, of Welsh and the near extinction of Welsh. Um, um, in the 20th century, uh, and so that really resonated with me, and, and got me looking into this subject. Um, and, and you know, as, as as many people might be aware, especially people that do speak a, a minority or or a kind of heritage language, that you know the vast majority of the world's languages are, at this point are endangered. There's about seven thousand currently existing languages, but half the planet speaks one of just 23. So the vast majority of of those languages are, you know, not majority uh, thriving languages. They are languages that tend to be at risk and, you know, full uh, 2400 of them are classed as endangered by uh, by UNESCO.
1: If I could just if I could just jump in for a second. uh, One of the big insights of your book that I want to just alert listeners at the outset is. You make the interesting point in your book that the death of these languages or their, their erosion is not just the result of what is usually diagnosed as being the result of you know um, main, mainstream media – Of modernization, of globalization, but no. In fact, a lot of these languages, and especially the ones you're going to be talking about, die because of authoritarian uh, restriction and crackdown, and and nationalistic uh, sort of attempts at nationalistic unity.
2: Absolutely. You know, I would argue that they either die by they die by repression or they die by neglect. That you know, there is also languages that aren't actively uh, suppressed, but you have colonial. Uh, governments or or post-colonial governments which do nothing to to try and support these languages or, or enable speakers to to try and protect the 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 their tongues and promote them, um, and, and yeah, and and I think there is an attitude among a lot of people, especially you know monolingual people may, that that maybe don't have you know that don't have as much exposure to to other languages around the world that that tend to think of this as in more. Uh, kind of Darwinian terms that that languages could just kind of you know are naturally replaced or naturally fade away and and, and that just you know that there, there is a degree to which obviously languages shift you know we we don't speak the same form of English that they spoke five hundred years ago, and arguably that form of English went extinct as it evolved into the current form of English. And, you know, you can talk about the ways that languages change in that regard. But when we talk about minority languages and and indigenous languages and how they interact with with empire, with with authoritarianism, you know, that nearly always tends to be a far more active uh, top down a model or top-down approach which which causes them to 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 fade away and and to, and in a lot of cases actually go extinct.
1: Do you want to give us a little background on, on your own personal experience with Welsh and expand that over now to your current situation?
2: Yeah, so uh, Welsh obviously uh, you know is, is you know the indigenous language of the British Isles. it was the, the language that you know it's, it comes from Brythonic, which obviously gives us the name for Britain um, and was gradually pushed out of the rest of Britain um, by the Anglo-Saxon conquest and the Norman conquest after that. You know, until relatively late, you know, into the 1800s, Welsh was still the majority language in Wales, but that started to shift as a result of deliberate government policy, um, which was often not so much, you know, not so much about helping people speak English as a way to improve their lives or improve their opportunities, but uh, was most immediately motivated by a desire to stop uh, worker unrest and and uh, protests which were seen as connected to the fact that these spoke people spoke a different language and they didn't uh, appreciate uh, the benefits of the british empire which will uh, maybe resonate with with some of the story we'll tell about uh, china later through the 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 20th century welsh was 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 rapidly declining and, and heading towards extinction and that was turned around right at the end of the century with a concerted uh, grassroots revival project, which was quite lucky uh, politically that there happens to be the the right uh, political climate, say, for for this to take hold. Um, I was uh, born in 1988 and my generation was the first uh, to have all of our schooling. In Welsh, we you know we were the major beneficiaries of this uh, this revival project, and so now Welsh is again growing. Uh, we we have about eight hundred thousand speakers in Wales, which is you know, for a population of three million is, is a decent chunk. And the Welsh government's targeting uh, one million speakers by twenty thirty, which they should hit. So so w- Welsh is very much a uh, a model of a successful language revival, and it's it's one that is used by by other language uh, projects around the world as, as a as a guideline.
1: Can I ask you a question about Welsh in comparison with uh, Cantonese that we'll be talking about? Uh, one of the problems with Chinese is that most of the dialects don't have a written form. Cantonese is the only one that arguably does. And in fact, books and magazines have been and still sometimes are printed in Cantonese. What's the situation with Welsh? Is there a Welsh you know, literate, literature that you can buy? Books in the bookstore you can buy?
2: Yes, absolutely. Uh, Welsh has a very strong uh, literary history. Um, some listeners may have heard of the Mabinogion, which is the the story of uh, it's kind of the Welsh myths, or you know historically, and they were translated into English, but you know obviously originally written in Welsh. And there is still a strong, very strong modern uh, existing literary culture of, of poetry, of media, of, of books, and 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 also Welsh television and radio and things like that.
1: Okay, so it's so the pe- people there's still these eight hundred thousand you're talking about are. Are also literate in Welsh, or is there a disparity between being able to hear and understand and read?
2: No, uh, or not. You know, not a substantial one. Certainly, you know, the, the the vast majority of people are are reading and living in Welsh, and they're consuming media in Welsh, and they're talking to each other on. You know, we use the Latin alphabet, so it's it's not as as there are not the extra issues that Chinese presents when we're talking about Chinese languages. Uh, so so you know, yeah, people are texting each other in Welsh, they're surfing the internet in Welsh, they're reading newspapers in Welsh.
0: I think in terms of popular culture, much of the, at least the United States and I think many people around the world got their first, one of their first introductions to the politics of the revitalization of the Welsh language through Netflix and The Crown and uh, the, the sixth episode of season three, which not only was about this issue and about the Prince of Wales learning Welsh, but much of the dialogue uh, in the show was in Welsh with subtitles, which I think is probably something at least a lot of people in the United States and maybe even in Britain aren't terribly used to.
2: Yeah, so while there is uh, there is a Welsh language television channel in in the UK, a publicly funded one, it, it only broadcasts within Wales. So so you know most English and, and Scottish people are not going to come across Welsh on the airwaves. And, and yeah, I agree with you that I think the the crown did a, a huge uh, gave a huge boost to to the visibility of Welsh as a as a living and, and vibrant language. And, and and I think it's very interesting actually. You know, watching that episode, I, I, I was. I was very happy and 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 quite quite surprised at how well it handled uh the the conversation around Welsh and the controversies and, and you know presenting at, at the you know so in the episode there it mainly focuses on on Prince Charles and his Welsh teacher and but it shows the Welsh teacher at home with his family and everyone just speaking in Welsh and that you know they're living in this language not only I think maybe that wouldn't have been shown. Uh, maybe as, as soon as a decade ago. But I think there would have been a degree to which it would have been somewhat played for laughs more. Uh, the Welsh, Welsh has always been very diminished and and quite patronised uh, in the English media in Britain. So it, I, I think it did show actually just how far the language has come, that, that it is really, there's a degree of kind of confidence and security in the Welsh language in Wales that there wasn't uh, even when I was growing up.
0: Before we kind of switch over to the uh, this hemisphere, I want to talk a little bit about the the third case study, if you will, that you used in the book, which I thought was also very interesting. And particularly for me, coming from a perspective of researching in, in colonialism and imperialism, particularly in nineteenth century, I thought your choice of the of the Hawaii islands was was really mm-hmm. fascinating. And I was just kind of curious, kind of going through your process a little bit. Before we get on to Cantonese, between Hong Kong, where you now live, and Wales, where you grew up, what led you to choose the Hawaiian Islands as the third case study? I know you have some really interesting sort of shorter interludes in the, mm. um, in the book as well. I, I suspect those were sort of research paths, not walked all the way down. But why was, <laughs> why was Hawaii the one that got its whole home mm. section?
2: Yeah, so you know, from the genesis of the book, I, I always knew that the Welsh and Cantonese would would be two of the languages, and and I felt that there was the need for for a third one to to you know really have a coherent thesis that that it wasn't just kind of comparing two pretty different languages and pretty different situations. Um, and I and I did search around. Obviously, there's a lot of uh, language movements around the world. There's a lot of revival projects. I I looked at um, Maori in New Zealand for a while some other European languages. Uh, and the reason I, I kind of settled on, on Hawaii is that it, 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 a, it, it kind of fits in with the other two, I think, because that it, you know, I, I say in the introduction that, that it, it is, these are three places which are at the edges of their respective empires and that you know, they're both part of them and, and somewhat pulling away from them at the same time. And so we have uh, Hong Kong as, as a, you know, as, as a, on the periphery of, of the PRC, we have Wales as the first colony of the British Empire and are now pushing towards independence. And we have Hawaii as, as the, you know, the one of the newest uh, uh, U.S. states and U.S. territories, which is, um, you know, illegally annexed, but never given back. And, uh, you know, and, and, I, and I think it is interesting to, to see how, you know, both how these three territories and three imperial powers have dealt and are dealing with uh, with these languages and how these languages have uh, resisted and 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 tried to survive during that thing. And then I think the states of Hawaiian. So so Hawaiian is is very very much a minoritized language and and is still in a vulnerable stage, but is being revived and is is kind of progressing in a positive way. But I wanted something that was on a different. Kind of level compared to Welsh and Welsh and Cantonese. I Cantonese, you know, is nowhere near being a minority language, and, and we can talk about that later. Uh, and Welsh is is been a successful revival. So I wanted something that was on both both of these re, the reasons I already said, and that the language was in a slightly different stage. There was more interesting things to talk about.
1: Maybe you should give us just a brief overview. I think some of the readers or listeners know about the Cantonese situation, but maybe give us an overview of Cantonese, um, uh, it, its status in, in among the uh. The Chinese, I would say dialects is the word that that we're supposed to use but they're really languages. Uh, What's the status of Cantonese and how does Hong Kong fit into this picture?
2: Yeah, I would, I I, I use the term dialect, I use the term Chinese languages. I I, I think it's uh, you know, in the way that we would talk about Latin languages I, I don't think we, you know Uh, um, Yeah, there's a whole, there's a long uh, uh, rabbit hole you can go down over Topoleks and and, uh, Fangyan, things like that. So, but anyway, uh, Cantonese obviously is the, uh, after Mandarin or after the Mandarin family of languages, Cantonese is one of the largest uh, uh, Chinese language families. Uh, or the Yue families is is the parent one, but Cantonese is the the most widely spoken version of it. Primarily spoken in, in Guangdong and and Hong Kong, but increasingly Guangdong has become um, a bilingual province with uh, Cantonese Pusonghua, and and a lot of uh, major cities in Guangdong are not uh, not primary uh, Cantonese speaking. So so Shenzhen is is the leading example, but. You know that is more to do, to do with immigration than policy, perhaps. But even Guangzhou now is, which is the kind of heartland of the language, is is mostly is majority Putonghua speaking, though you know, slim majority. Um, in Hong Kong, uh, the situation is still very, very much uh, majority Cantonese speaking. It's something like ninety percent of the city speaks Cantonese and and the version or the, the the you know then we can talk about a kind of dialect of cantonese that that people speak in hong kong is is slightly different to that spoken across the border because of hong kong's colonial history and and the way that hong kong is somewhat a trilingual city as with english and putonghua that does inflect how people speak cantonese here um and since uh, since 1997 when when the prc assumed control over hong kong there has been a degree, uh, both kind of paranoia on the part, part of Cantonese speakers that that Putonghua would be uh, advanced as the primary language of Hong Kong, a- and also a desire by policymakers um, on either side of the border to use Putonghua as a way of, uh, you know, a way of unifying hong kong better with the mainland you know at the moment this is perhaps one of the biggest differences between hong kong and the rest of china is is that this is a cantonese uh, speaking uh, territory and the rest of china is a putonghua speaking country that you know that is a major difference in
0: uh, in your introduction you uh, you quote a welsh saying Canadel heb
2: yth canada heb
0: yeah, that, <laughs> which translates in English as a nation without a language is a nation without a heart. Am I kind of corrected by that? Yeah. And I, I kind of wonder, looking at that, that, at that you know, sentiment and thinking about what's happening with Cantonese and thinking about how, from the perspective of the central government and to some extent, their proxies in Hong Kong, the idea of taking away a language to, so to take away the heart of a nation, because, of course, that term nation um, is is so fraught with peril for the authorities in China and it just seems like that you know what seems to be a sentiment uh, a descriptive sentiment about the importance of language if if you were to read it to a, a Chinese official or official from the People's Republic they would think that is almost prescriptive. You know, ripped out the language, mm. and you ripped out the heart.
2: Yeah, and 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 I think this is something that's accelerated. That that you know, perhaps in '97 and in the 2000s, policymakers would have been looking at this from an educational basis and from a you know economic basis that they wanted people to speak more put in in Hong Kong as a way of, you know, as a way of improving cross border communication. And I think increasingly now they are seeing, on both sides of this debate, arguably are seeing. Cantonese as something which separates Hong Kong from the rest of China. And you have, uh, you know, during the 2019 protests, Cantonese played a major role in, you know, the the protesters really recognize this as, as a core part of their identity. And they used Cantonese, even, you know, there was, there was a stage where there was a lot of concern about surveillance by uh, state security. And there was a brief period of all the protest propaganda would be printed in, uh, written in Cantonese, but in Latin characters, so that you really had to be a native speaker to, to understand what was being said. And, you know, there were protest slogans, which only really work in, in Cantonese, very, very vernacular Cantonese. You know, this is now seen, you know, this is very much seen as as a core part of being a Hong Konger is to speak Cantonese. I, I even spoke to um, one of the most interesting interviews I, I did during the protest was uh, there was a young protester I knew that was originally from the mainland, and and you know not from Guangdong either. And and he um, he had learned Cantonese and and was a very very active frontline protester and was very involved in the movement. And and I asked him about there was a kind of growing hostility towards Putonghua at the time and towards Putonghua speakers. And even him, as a as a as one himself who had learned Cantonese, kind of said, "No, you know, if you're going to identify with Hong Kong, you you need to speak Cantonese. This is part of the identity of the city." Um, so it kind of comes from both directions that the, you know you can see people identifying with it more and more, and at the same time, as you said, Jeremiah, the the government is saying, "Oh, this is the core of the identity. If we just got rid of this, that might solve a lot of the problems." Which is, you know, exactly the. Uh, proceed, the exactly kind of the policies they've adopted in other parts of China.
1: Yeah, this this goes way back to the very beginnings of the language policy that, you're, that we're talking about. This tension has been in the the Putonghua policy from the very beginning, which is: are we trying to create a common tongue that everyone can use as a communication vehicle, or are we expecting and actually ab, ac, you know taking uh, action to gradually erode and erase? the other language forms that's the big tension that was never officially re- was never officially resolved but my impression from talking to chinese people throughout the years is that most people do share that idea that if you if you don't have a common tongue then there's this risk of fracture there's this ris- risk of political schism that you don't feel like you're the same part of the same group of people there's an identification with language and culture and you know, when you saw when we, uh, I think it was in 2010, when they began to take uh, Cantonese off the radio stations and, and the t- TV stations in in, uh, Guang, in Guangdong province, the people took to the streets, because they said, you know, this is part of our culture. Cantonese does seem to be somewhat of a special case, as I mentioned, it has a written form, and uh, the numbers of speakers is enormous, it's the, the equivalent of the number of Italian speakers world, worldwide and also there's there's cantonese opera there's there's a, there's an entire culture that's embedded in this so you know even when i was going back and forth in hong kong in the in the in the two, early 2000s and the 90s there were more and more mainland scholars uh, at the universities there and the the faculty and the students realized they they couldn't conduct all their meetings in cantonese anymore they had to sort of include everyone and all these sorts of things cause this erosion but cantonese is a, such a special case in terms of its its role as a uh, another uh, sort of an alternative uh, Chinese uh, culture, Sino culture. There, maybe we could talk about that. As if that dies out in Hong Kong, is the is that cultural identity also going to die out with it?
2: Yeah, and, and you know, Cantonese is so is such a strong language in terms of the the broader Chinese uh, kind of language sphere. I mean, as as you wrote about um, David, you know, there was a very brief period in the the conversations around the, the choosing a national tongue. Where, where Cantonese was being mooted as a potential example you know it it was never a, as strong as a contender as a lot of Cantonese speakers like to pretend but but you know it was in the conversation which you know most Chinese languages would definitely weren't and yeah the you know I I do make a point in the book and, I, and I've tried to make a point in all the media I do that you know this is a language with 80 plus million speakers it is not going to die out tomorrow it's probably not you know it's not even going to die out in the next 50 years what's Concerning and I think what is worth talking about is the is the degree to which it might be diminished uh, in the future and, and potentially put on a very uh, you know a very dangerous path in the way that other, you know, very widely spoken Chinese languages have been. You know, I think you can just look at Shanghainese and some other uh, Wu languages and see, you know, these languages spoken by millions of people, that's not the case anymore. And I think Cantonese is particularly interesting because while it has a very large speaker base on paper, you know the vast majority of them are in You know, are are living in bilingual uh, communities. So so either in either in Guangdong or or around the world, you know, within the Cantonese diaspora, both in Southeast Asia and particularly in North America. You know, so they're not necessarily in first language communities. The major first language Cantonese speaking community, with the exception of Macau, which everyone always forgets and we mustn't always forget, uh, is Hong Kong. You know, that Hong Kong is, is the first language community and, and Hong Kong is, is the one that generates most of the media, most of the literature, most of the, you know, culture of Cantonese. Uh, and, you know, then we're not talking about a language of, of uh, 80 million. We're talking about a language of 6 million, which is maybe much more vulnerable than it might seem. And were you to, you know, were that uh, community to be diminished or, or reduced? What if, you know, I think we should be concerned about what the potential knock-on effects for the larger Cantonese diaspora could be, because, you know, while diasporas are important for keeping languages alive, they're not generally the drivers of culture, you know, they're living in an English or a, or a port or, you know, whatever other language world, and they're not going to be, you know, writing the next uh, Cantonese, great Cantonese opera, they're going to be consuming media from Hong Kong, and if they lose it, that could affect how they pass on the language to their children. Um, and so I think maybe Cantonese is more vulnerable than people realize. And because of the situation in Hong Kong, in that we've uh, rapidly lost uh, the degree to, you know, the limited o- autonomy and the limited democracy that that was granted after 1997, the, the ability to try and protect Cantonese in future is, you know, drastically curtailed. And that could also have a kind of accelerating effect when it comes to how it, you know, how it uh, evolves in the coming years.
0: You know, one of the things I think about, too, is the the shift over the last two decades or so in terms of China's soft culture influence around the world, which for a long time in the 20th, 20th century was driven by Hong Kong and Cantonese language media. You think about the kind of TV shows that were being consumed in Southeast Asia or, frankly, you know, the kind of movies that, you know, nerdy kids like me grew up on in the, in North America. A lot of them were Hong Kong movies, the first Chinese that many people in the United States of my generation and early generations heard was probably Cantonese. But uh, that, now that's certainly shifted in the last couple of decades, especially as Mandarin has become or as the People's Republic and its film industry, TV industry has, has developed so much. But I still think there is, you know, there is something about uh, the Cantonese media culture in the Cantonese language media culture that I think has some staying power. How do you think that kind of fits into, you know, whether it's to keep the diaspora together or to promote this idea that there is another way of expressing oneself in a Chinese language? Uh, do you think, how does that, how does that kind of soft culture, pop culture, media culture play a role in this?
2: Yeah, I think it definitely does. And I, and I agree with you that the influence of of Cantonese, you know, soft power as it were shouldn't be underestimated um when uh, my wife is from hong kong and, and when we got married in in thailand one of her uncles is a is a fairly well-known cantonese soap star and all the staff at the thai hotel were posing for selfies with him because they watched the his the soaps when when they you know so you know it, it really is it was the you know it was the korean dramas of, of its day and you know i don't think that will necessarily go away anytime soon though obviously you know people aren't watching 40-year-old uh, soap so much. And and, and I think, uh, you know, that will maybe sustain Cantonese in, in a way that other Chinese languages have not been able to, you know, there wasn't, uh, you know, there isn't so much kind of popular culture. You know, we've even seen Efforts to create new popular culture, so with, um, you know, rap in Sichuanese and and things like that, that have been, you know, sometimes rebuffed and and rejected by the Chinese state, and it's debatable what reasons that was. Sometimes that's just the natural conservatism of Chinese officials that don't like anything young people do. It's not necessarily about language, but but um, you know, I think it is very difficult to sustain a language without that culture and you know we've seen that in lots of parts of europe when you don't have books being written you don't have uh, poetry you don't have have music being written in a language anymore it very quickly becomes a dead and you know a kind of heritage language rather than a minority language and, and there is a big difference when it comes to survival and and how they move forward in future you know i think the important thing about cantonese is is, is yeah not to over not to exaggerate how the danger but to to think about how you know how how much this very strong language that that should have no, should really have no risk to it naturally. You know, we talked about that this idea, this Darwinian idea that languages fade and, and are threatened by other languages as if as if governments aren't involved. And I think Cantonese is, is so widely spoken and strong that that, I don't think anyone would argue that that should happen naturally. And, and what will be important to, to, to see in the next few years, especially in Hong Kong, is how much the kind of security and the, the level of the language being spoken changes what um, when it has completely lost political power when when there is no way to advocate for it, and there is no way to push back against any erosion
1: so yes, that brings up a very thorny issue, and i don 't know if you know the answer or not because it does involve future events and which we don 't know, but technically speaking when when, when, uh, when politically china once Ch- uh, Hong Kong becomes politically uh, a, a leg of China. Then technically, the, the same rules that uh, the state administration of radio, film, and television, and so forth, the state uh, state media has this very rigid rule now for, for mainland China that all state media outlets, news outlets, must be in Putonghua and not the local dialects. Although I think as we talked about on the phone a little bit briefly, I've seen exceptions to that in, when, in places like Sichuan and maybe also uh, Guangzhou, I'm not sure, but you do hear bits of local dialect on radio sometimes uh, but the question is what happens when that when that transition takes place and technically Hong Kong would be under the same source of media jurisdiction as all the other provinces of, of mainland China are they really going to try to enforce a, a, an exclusive putonghua policy for, for Hong Kong it, not even in the you know in the far future much less you know the near future would be, would be it would be impossible to function as a media
2: you know, I don't want to try and predict the future, especially when we talk about twenty forty seven. Especially that you know, Chinese politics does wax and wane when when it comes to repression, and, and perhaps we'll you know be in a in a more enlightened period uh, when when that comes. But you know, what I would note is is that that you know it might seem impossible that that Hong Kong would change it to that degree, but you know, Guangdong has and Guangdong is is where the language originates and and you know was spoken by tens of millions of people and you know obviously there is there is a geographic difference and there's a there's an administrative difference but you know the fact that that has had such a profound shift in in only a matter of about 20 30 years you know I think is is evidence that that it could happen elsewhere and that you know the great concern in Hong Kong and even among uh, language activists is that the that uh, is that Cantonese here becomes far more politicized, and so that you don't get it's not the same policy as they follow in Guangdong, which is a kind of gradual, you know, promotion of, of bilingualism and and occasional uh, repressive uh, attitude, but mostly is about pushing Putonghua than necessarily. Uh, stamping out Cantonese. The concern is that if, if Cantonese is really politicised as the language of, you know, Hong Kong uh, activism and of Hong Kong anti-government sentiment, that you get the policies which we've seen in Xinjiang and Tibet, which are far, far more repressive and and are far more hostile towards the language and are more suspicious of anyone trying to promote it.
1: Well, that segues into the into the other minority languages that, that maybe we could talk about because obviously, what in what you're saying, the secret or the uh, the crucial aspect is the education system. You know, once they get Putonghua, administ- uh, you know, entrenched in the educational system, then that's th- which is what they did in in, in uh, Guang Guangdong, actually was, you know, the kids are really really bilingual and they absorb Chinese media and they speak. You know, sometimes they're more comfortable in Putonghua than they are with in Cantonese, and the same thing could easily easily happen in one generation. In Hong Kong, once the educational system be, be changes, right?
2: And and it's that's already happening. I mean, yeah. the majority of primary schools are already uh, Pusunhua Medium, right? So, so when they teach, in, so it's teaching can, it's teaching inevitable.
1: Yeah, that will. So you add to not only the top-down sort of governmental pressure, but also the the Darwinian forces that you just mentioned. Both take both take a role in in the erosion of the language. I have one off, just a little tiny question before we move move to other languages, perhaps. But uh, I haven't kept up with the situation. You might know better than I. Being there, but I always was very interested in the extent to which you had written Cantonese, the the books and magazines and things. And um, it seems to me 20 years ago when I was there, it was very common to see mostly they were sort of trashy film magazines or porno or different things that were written in Cantonese, which is very obvious. You see all these these codes upon these these mouth radicals everywhere you know there is an issue with with these tricks that you can play with cantonese and and everything like that but do you see a complete uh, just a, uh, not an erosion but i haven't seen very many cantonese printed material there since i've been back in recent years does it s- is that still a thing
2: i think it is something that's shifting there, there is definitely still uh a written cantonese and especially online um you know because this this is the, the language of, of young people and they, they tend to use it but and and there's been a big shift and in, in how people um you know not to get too granular but there's even been a shift in how people uh, type Chinese that of moving towards using Cantonese input rather than using Pinyin to write everything, which is obviously based on Putonghua. But you know, I think maybe the biggest shift uh, in the last year or so in in that regard is that we've lost the the main uh, Cantonese language newspaper, which was Apple Daily, which is a pro democracy newspaper. You know, that was written in in quite, you know very vernacular Cantonese, quite sometimes quite impenetrably <laughs> vernacular Cantonese and and that that's been banned it's been forced to shut by the by the government um the majority of its executives are facing long prison terms under the national security law and that, I think, will have a great effect. Yeah, you know, the kind of celebrity magazines are still around, the, some of these smaller publications, but, you know, to lose Apple Daily, I think, is, is, a, major, is a major shift when, we, when we're talking about written Cantonese.
0: In the case of Wales and Hawaii, you're, we were talking about two places that are on the edges of expanding empires in which the, the, the cultural and langu- linguistic values of the centre are being imposed on the peripheries of an empire. Now, trying to express that same sentiment when it comes to Hong Kong is one that is likely to be quite unpopular among many people in China, not the least of which are the government and academics. But do you see the same processes at, at, at work in Hong Kong? If so, what does this say about the relationship between, I guess, speaking broadly, North China, South China or mainland China and uh in, the, in Hong Kong in, the, in Hong Kong
2: yeah I, I agree that this is, this is a very controversial issue I, I don't think it should necessarily be too controversial to, to say that that you know uh, the Chinese government and the the post 97 Hong Kong government you know they inherited a, a colonial structure that was set up by the Brits they changed it slightly but it largely is still in place you know this is a city where a lot of its laws are are you know this is a semi autonomous territory within one country two systems where a lot of uh, the regulations and, and laws are set by um you know the metropolis in beijing not by uh locally elected officials or or you know or even or even locally non elected officials uh, in a, in a lot of cases um and, and so it does you know it does uh, behave you know it is it is not exact it's not exactly the same as as uh 18th 19th century imperialism uh, and and uh, you know i think we should shouldn't necessarily um you know conflate the two things but but you know we should look at it in a model of you know this is a you know and i think that one country two systems is even to a degree set up like this it is a a you know almost a colonial model you have a separate uh, system a separate government which is uh somewhat administered by a government elsewhere you know that is you know um, the, the chinese would hate would never describe hong kong as a colony but that is a somewhat colonial uh model and you know and the, the reason for it is because it literally was a colonial model before 1997 um, so so yeah i think there is i think there is a big um there is a large similarity between how Hong Kong is administered and how um, Hawaii, Hawaii, I mean, how Hawaii still is administered. It doesn't have the degree of um, self-government as, as, uh, as Wales does, but you know, and Wales is still uh, within the British within the, within the United Kingdom uh, say, and and is maybe heading towards independence in a few years.
0: So, yeah. So, so last summer, which was the last time I was invited for tea, uh, we had a nice pleasant chat with the local police force about what I was doing and how I was spending my COVID summer and, and everything was quite nice. And at the very end, they were kind of like, "So, what, what? are you doing right now? You know?" And I'm like, "Well, you know, I'm using my free time to read. And hey, I'm I'm studying Manchu as well. And the minute I said that, the notebooks came back out. And like, <laughs> why are you studying Manchu? And I'm like, "Well, you know, I'm a historian." and it's an old history language that nobody would ever speak anymore. But it did. It was. It was about the same time that there were protests in Inner Mongolia over the change in education policy there. And coincidentally, not so coincidentally, many of the websites that were based in China that were used as tools for learning languages like Manchu suddenly had technical problems. And it does seem that you know we're talking about Cantonese here, but obviously these policies affect a great many people living in china and i was wondering how some of the research that you've done looking at cantonese looking at welsh looking at hawaiian how that tracks or applies to some of these other groups that are also facing pressure linguistically
2: yeah and and i think it's very interesting to look at uh communities especially non-chinese communities at the periphery of the PRC, because you can see a shift from, uh, you know, promoting Putonghua and promoting this lingua franca, which I think it is worth pointing out, you know, there's nothing wrong with having a lingua franca. There was a very, very good reason that Putonghua was invented and and that, you know, Chinese rulers had been for a long time trying to have a lingua franca to, you know, tie the country together linguistically and aid in communication. That doesn't necessarily need... Other languages to be diminished. You know, you can have a bilingual community, and you have various bilingual communities. Um, and and I think what we've seen um, in places like Xinjiang, Tibet, and and now and in the Mongolia, is is a shift from from just promoting Putonghua and 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 you know enabling people to learn Putonghua and, and help them you know join in the the grand Chinese economic ex- experiment. To a more assimilationist uh, policy, where the local languages are increasingly seen as a threat, and the fact that you didn't speak Putonghua or that you didn't speak very good Putonghua was seen as suspicious and was seen as separatist and secessionist, and you know this was long the case in in Xinjiang and Tibet, which obviously do have, uh, you know historical secessionist movements and and at various times have been independently ruled and have pushed back against Chinese rule since 1949. Um, But the fact in the last couple of years that we've seen this happen in in Inner Mongolia, you know, the Mongols are often called the, you know, kind of model ethnic minority in China because they, they don't cause any problems. They're not necessarily advocating for independence in the way that a lot of Tibetans and Uyghurs are. Um, you know, does, I think, speak to this real suspicion that has grown, um, you know, within the the Xi Jinping administration and those around him of, you know, of, Uh, non-Chinese culture and non-Chinese languages uh, as something that is kind of necessarily anti-unifying and and that is maybe something that will lead to to separatism if you don't stamp it out. That, you know, just having an extra language on top of that isn't enough to bind these people. They have to speak the same language as us. Otherwise, they might try and break away.
1: I teach some undergraduate students here, Chinese undergraduate students, and I have some Uyghurs and, and a few Tibetans and i think not too many Mo- inner mongolians but some, but a few um, and there's this kind of a tension that i wonder how you would address in the educational system one is that this this notion that that you know you do need this lingua franca and you need people speaking it adequately and uh, i think in my book which is outdated at this point but i think there were, i said there's something like 300 to 400 million people still in china still couldn't speak speak putonghua adequately they can understand it perhaps but can't speak it very well and then also um, the issue of what I really want to address is this tension between uh, parents and also students who realize that speaking good Putonghua and then in some cases English also is a ticket to to a good job and, and resume building and so forth. And so there there really is a tension even among people who lament the loss of, of culture and the heritage and the language that that there's there's sort of like you know well what are what are our priorities to be able to understand still understand uh, Xinjiangese fairy tales uh, you know and talk to your grandmother or is it to get a job and to make lots of money for your family and th- it seems like this is a kind of an unresolvable tension and it seems to work in favor of the government's policy of Kind of pushing all the other languages out. Well, what do you think of that dynamic?
2: Yeah, absolutely. And you know, this is a this is a tension that exists in, in a lot of other societies as well. In in Wales, you know, th- this was not purely a top down a top down uh, repression of Welsh. There was also, you know, a, a decision by a lot of Welsh parents not to teach their children Welsh and to encourage them to learn English for for the same reasons. You know, this was seen as the language of the future and the language that you needed to learn to get ahead. You know, I think what is what is the core mistake there and and that, you know, I'm not blaming parents in this, but, you know, that governments should should know better is is that bilingual education is a thing that works and functions very, very well in lots of places around the world. And, you know, I am a func- I am a, the product of a bilingual education system. I speak Welsh and English and, you know, as people are hearing, it did not diminish my ability to speak English or to write books in English. And, and I think that's what's been so unfortunate, and and actually, what's what's really unfortunate is that the. The, the, the communist uh scholars in the in, in the 1930s and forties were incredibly uh forward thinking on this and incredibly progressive when it came to um to Fang Yan and to to non-Chinese languages, that they 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 warned against uh the dictatorship of 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 Mandarin and they you know they warned that that there could be you know this this that a lingua franca could end up stamping out other languages rather than serving as a you know auxiliary language. Because, you know, there you know some people within all these places will want to learn and and maybe need to learn putonghua as a way of existing within china but you know there is no reason that cantonese say couldn't be the language the dominant language of you know practically all of rural Guangdong. There isn't much reason for farmers in Guangdong to be communicating with each other in Putonghua if they don't want to. And, you know, they should be given the ability to, 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 you know, their children should be given the ability to learn both of them. You know, so I, I think there is a strong kind of argument to say that, that you know, this idea, this uh, kind of zero-sum idea is, you know, is misguided. And, and it's one that a lot of governments tend to seize on because it, you know, it, it benefits them when it comes to advancing their own, you know, assimilationist policies.
1: Yeah, you're 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 so right, and this is you know kind of looking looking back historically at some missed opportunities. You know, there was a lot of talk when the, when these language proposals were being made during during the uh, at the and and Mao Zedong and his comrades at Yan'an were making all sorts of you know plans. You know, and one of them did envision a much more multi multilingual China. Uh, and originally sorry, I was gonna say originally
2: it originally it was the ROC that was far more assimilationist and and you know anti anti Fanyan and, and you know and, and did behave terribly when it comes to language policy in Taiwan. You know, the communists were were you know were the ones saying we should shouldn't do this and we should be protecting other languages.
1: That's right, because they they were interested in the, the people, the Lao Baixiang, right? Yeah. So there there was this possibility uh that at that time that 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 will evidently never be fulfilled, which is, is that to have not only local languages preserved, but then also local written culture so that you, you know, you could have, because it was well within the, the ability of the PRC at that time to inst- initiate that kind of a policy. And, you know, things have changed so much now that it's impossible to go back. But it's, most of these language groups have progressed forward and not of not only lost contact with the with the oral language or the oral language, but also uh, the, the very chance the very possibility of rendering some of these uh, linguistic forms and these linguistic gems into a permanent written form, that hope is kind of gone forever. And I predict that hope is lost for, for Cantonese as well and that uh, you know for in terms of a written culture that could survive a vernacular, Culture, written culture. It's almost the hope is gone in China.
2: I talk a bit in my book about the the um, you know the development of Pinyin and and the, the precursor to it, Latinhua, that that was um, developed by largely by communist thinkers, um, and, and there was a strong desire to to you know not only have have a, a Latin uh, way of writing um, Mandarin, which became Putonghua, uh, but also of, of of rendering all other languages um, in the same way. Um, and obviously that that didn't happen. And, and one of the, you know, one of the major developments of that, I think, is is I talk a bit about um, digital language death, uh, not totally in the context of Chinese. But um, of that's this idea that if languages kind of don't make that jump to digital platforms, you know, they are going to become fossilized and, and you know, you're not going to. And that's very much the case. for for Chinese, you know, you can speak Shanghainese or or any other language with your parents and and even on the streets and, you know, even in some environment communities, but you're nearly always typing in Mandarin, you're writing in Pinyin and you're reading, uh, you know, uh, Mandarin based Chinese. Uh, And so that, you know, that gradual shift and even even when it comes to spoken uh, digital products, you know, uh, uh TikTok has been knocked a bunch of times for mm. um, you know, basically telling people, you know, can you please stop speaking Cantonese? We don't have any censors that speak this language, so we need you to speak for some while. <laughs> um, and, and... So, so even in spoken forms, it's it's not making the jump digitally, and and that I think has a really damaging effect.
0: Well, James, thank you so much for taking time out of your busy afternoon to to speak with us today. Uh, the book is called "Speak Not Empire: Identity and the Politics of Language" from Zed and Bloomsbury, and also your earlier book, "The Great Firewall of China," is also now out on paperback as well. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you. Uh, It was a lot of fun. Thank you, David. Okay, thank you. All right, and until next time, uh, this is Jeremiah and David from Barbarians at the Gate.